It's really great to be together. So we had a little excitement this week in the McMurray home involving a little trip to the emergency room. Yes, where my wife said goodbye to her appendix. After 47 years, a long and complicated relationship with her appendix, she said goodbye. And it was actually a little scary. So I'm really thankful. A lot of, we got a lot of love from all of you, a lot of support, prayers. Thank you so much for that. It was such a blessing. But she'd been hurting all week, the week leading up to a, a Monday when we finally went to the doctor and we're sitting in the doctor's office and he, and he looked at us and he said, is there any chance that you're pregnant? <laughs> I, so the append, okay, this is where an appendicitis is really good news, all right? <laughs> Okay, so he was like, well, he sent us right off to Meridian Park. He's like, let's run some tests. She, he, he ordered a, an ultrasound, and, um, and, the, and the, the technician was sort of working the wand over Kathy's belly, and, and she went past this lower part of her belly, and she was like, whoa. And she said, your appendix is three times bigger than it should be. She said, in 20 years, I've never seen appendix this large that had not burst so it was. So she was like, "You're going straight to the ER," which we did. We went straight to the ER, uh, thanking. We looked at each other. We're not pregnant. Yes, okay. And then she, she went in and she just had the appendicitis. It's beautiful. So anyway, it was good. I'm glad to be here. Really thankful to be a part of a of a community. Let me tell you something. When you hit stuff like that, and then you realize we got people around us who love us. We're not alone. Wow, what a, what a powerful thing to have in your life. I hope you know that in your own life today. And what a powerful thing to be a part of a community that gathers every Sunday in faith to sing the way you just sang, to, to sing hymns and songs to one another and to open our, our, our Bibles together and to seek Christ. Is it not a great privilege to be a part of the community of Jesus? It is. Amen. And so... We'll do it again today. Will you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9? If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming. You will need a Bible today. Today will be a very deep uh, time in the Word. We're going to cover a lot of ground. You're going to need a pencil or a pen. You're going to need your bulletin. You're going to need some, a place to take notes. We've turned the page on chapter 8, and we're going to chapter 9. And here's what you're going to need to know in order to understand Luke chapter 9. In the Gospel of Luke, the phrase kingdom of God refers to God's redemptive reign in a broken and rebellious world. You say, Pastor, why do I need to know about that? Well, because it's a massive theme in Luke, and it's the central theme of Luke 9, the first 17 verses you got to understand this. What is the kingdom of God? I'll tell you in three words. It means God's redemptive reign. Not R-E-I, not R-A-I-N, but R-E-I-G-N. All right, I'm hooked on phonics. Thank you. Anyway, I made a slide for you so you can see this. This is kingdom of God language. God's redemptive reign in a rebellious world, a broken world. We're talking about 
his reign, his, his, his rule, all right? Often when we think of kingdom, we think of, of, of territory or land. As Americans, we're not used to kingdom talk. In fact, when I, when I say kingdom, many of you think magic kingdom, right? Disneyland. But this is not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is talking about God's reign, his right to rule over his created world. And that reign is redemptive. Do you know what that word means? It means it's about freedom. In the kingdoms of this world, a reign or a rule is is often about tyranny and control. People under a king have no power, but not in the kingdom of God that was ushered in through his son, Jesus Christ. In this kingdom, this kingdom is actually about freedom. True power that sets people free from bondage that's a result of sin and brokenness in a fallen world. It's really good news. And when you study the gospel of Luke, Jesus is constantly announcing this kingdom. Every village he walks into, he's announcing the kingdom. And perhaps the people are like, we've already got a kingdom. We don't need another kingdom. This is not good news. But then what Jesus does immediately is he sets people free. He sets people free from bondage to the demonic. He sets people free from sneezing attacks in the middle of the church service. He sets, no, I, mean, is, I don't know why I said that, but he sets people free. He sets people free from disease and illness and blindness. Everywhere he goes, he would say, I'm here to announce the kingdom, and I'm here to demonstrate the kingdom and bring the kingdom by freeing you from the things that are holding you down. Amazing. It's the kingdom of God, God's redemptive reign. And what's going to happen? We're turning the page from chapter 8 to chapter 9. We look at it with me. What we're going to see today is that Jesus actually has a strategy for this mission. He wants to spread the, the message of the kingdom to the whole nation of Israel and ultimately to the whole world, but he needs a strategy because this mission is too big for one person. And so what we're going to discover this morning is that Jesus requires the participation of anyone and everyone who would call themselves one of his followers. Amen? Amen. This is a message for River West Church, 2019. All right. So we look at it with me, Luke 9. Our passage is verses 1 through 17. Here's what's going to happen today. There's two stories that we're going to look at that involve Jesus teaching his 12 apostles the ministry. They're learning kingdom ministry from Jesus. And those two stories wrap around an odd little word about Herod, the king of Galilee, and his response. And at first, when you read it, you're going to wonder, why is Luke setting this in the middle of these two stories that so clearly go together where the apostles are learning kingdom ministry? What's happening? Well, let's find out. We'll enter into the story together. Here's what Luke said. Luke 9, verse 1. And he called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. There it is. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to what? To heal. It sounds a lot like what Jesus was doing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. And do not have two tunics. 
In whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, and they went to the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. In a minute, we'll keep reading, but isn't it amazing? Jesus, we're, we're all the way now to chapter 9, and now what happens in chapter 9? Something that we've not seen yet. Jesus gathers his 12, the 12 apostles. Remember them? We learned about them back in chapter 6. He gathers them together, and he gives them his power and authority. Just think about that for just a minute. We read way too fast. We read over this stuff so quick. Jesus gathers the 12 together, and he does something he's never done yet in the gospel. He gives them his power and his authority. Whoa. Can you imagine that? Power and authority. The words always go together in Luke. These are Luke's favorite two words to describe the ministry of Jesus. And they almost always go together. Luke always says he did things with power and authority. Power and authority. When Jesus, when Jesus walked into a village and he stood up in the synagogue and he taught, Luke says the people were astounded because of his authority. He spoke with authority. He didn't talk like the other rabbis of his day where they were always depending on someone else. There was always a footnote or a reference to a commentary or something. Not Jesus. He never quoted anyone. He never footnoted anything. He never had to go up the chain of command. He spoke with authority that was inherent to who he was as the eternal God come in the flesh. He spoke with authority, and people couldn't believe it. And then he would turn right around, and he would he would come upon a person possessed with a demon and he would say to that demon, be silent. I cast you out. And people were astounded. And they would go, with what power and authority he operates. And it blew people away. And you remember, we talked about those two words, power and authority. The word power is the Greek word dunamis, which it basically means the ability to do something. You have, the, you have the power, you have the ability to do something. And the word authority is the word exousia, which means the right to do something. And what happens, it's very rare in our world, but what happens when you have a person who has both the right to do something and the power to get it done, and you put those two together, it's incredible. Show me a person who they have power, but they don't have the right to do anything. The word we used to describe that person is a tyrant, right? They've got all this power, but they have no right to exert it. That's, that's tyranny. Show me a person who has the right to get stuff done, but they have no power. The word we used to describe that person is a parent of toddlers, Okay. <laughs> It's like, I'm pretty sure I've got the authority here, but I, there's no power at all. They're not doing what I say, right? What happens, though, when you take both of those and you put them together? I'll tell you what happens. Amazing kingdom things happen. And now you turn to chapter 9, and Jesus takes that power and that authority, and he shares it with people 
who are his followers. Amazing. I wonder what it was like. Put yourself there for a minute. How did it happen? Did he lay hands on them? I don't know. Was there a commissioning service? I'm not sure. But I can tell you this. It was probably a day they never forgot. The day that Jesus gathered them together and said, I've got a gift for you. I need to give you something because you're going to need it. And why? What was the mission? What was the task? We look back at Luke 9. We look at it with me, verse 2. Why would they need power and why would they need authority? What, would their, what was their task? Twofold, right? You see it there? He sent them out to do what? To proclaim the kingdom and to heal. Both those things. He said, here's my power and authority, now go, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to do exactly what I've been doing. Proclaim the kingdom and then demonstrate the kingdom. Freedom. Remember, my kingdom is not like kingdoms of this world where people are, are stuck in bondage. My kingdom is about setting people free. So everywhere you go, you're going to do both. It's this beautiful pairing of word and deed held together. Talk about this more in a moment. I'll drive this home into your hearts. But think about it. It's so important. Kingdom proclamation and kingdom demonstration held together. The kingdom is, is not just about people's souls, although it is that. It's also about their physical needs, their, their physical ailments, their hurts, their sorrows. Both of those arenas are dealt with anytime you're talking about the kingdom of Jesus. We'll talk about that more in just a minute, but let's, let's look at verse 3, and let me ask you a question. Why is Jesus so concerned with how they pack for this little journey? Why is he so fixated on how they pack? It's, it's a little obsessive-compulsive, isn't it? Look at this, verse 3. He says... Do not take anything with you for your journey. No staff. Don't take a bag. No bread. No money. Only take one tunic. What's happening here? And actually, if you keep reading, Jesus, he's giving them three specific instructions here. In verse 3, he says, don't take anything with you. And the, the point of that is, you're going you're gonna to represent me as a king but you're going to represent me in a way where you have total trust that I will provide for you. Don't take anything. You're not going to need it. Trust me, I'll provide. I'll provide through others. But the point is, trust me, you won't need money. You won't need bread. You won't need an extra coat. You won't need a staff. None of it. So don't take that stuff. And the second thing he says to them is, in verse 4, look at your own Bible. He says, whatever house you walk into, stay in that house until the time that you leave. In other words, the first person opens their door, don't look for better accommodations, right? It's like, you know, you could imagine they're like, the, the Johnsons down the street have a hot tub. Maybe we should head over there. It's a little nicer, you know, bedding or something. And Jesus is like, no, 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 this is not about your comfort. 
okay? This is not about your personal gain. Whoever opens their home to you, stay there. I want you to go out with total humility. This has nothing to do with you and what you gain, right? And then the third thing, which is there in verse four, is, or uh, verse five, is a little more, it's a little more intense. He basically says, if you go into a village and you're, and you're talking about the kingdom and the villagers there reject you and reject me and my message, when you leave, I want you to do this symbolic act where you wipe the dust off your feet. And the idea is kind of like this warning. It's a warning. Hey, uh, what you're doing here is, is spiritually risky. We're coming to tell you the greatest news you'll ever hear. Make sure that in rejecting it, you know what you're actually rejecting. So it's a little somber. And the point there is Jesus says, when you represent me, this, my task, this is, this is serious business. Take this seriously. Take this seriously. And so what do they do? They obey. Verse 6, they go. Preach the gospel. They heal. And then we come to this odd little paragraph that kind of comes out of nowhere, verses 7 to 9. I'll read it for you. It says, so the, 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 the 12 have gone out. They're spreading out. They're obeying. They're preaching. They're healing everywhere, it says. And then it's like, meanwhile, back at Herod's palace, <laughs> here's what's happening. Herod... The Tetrarch, that word Tetrarch means that Herod was in charge of one-fourth of a region, and that region was Galilee. So he, they took Palestine, they broke it up into fours. Herod was, the, Herod was a Tetrarch. He was a king, basically a king, and he was over one-fourth, and that one-fourth was Galilee. Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. And that word is very strong in the Greek. It means disturbed. It means Herod is starting to get nervous. It means Herod is thinking, what's happening? I'm hearing all these reports. It means Herod is starting to fidget. Herod is starting to worry about what he's hearing. Why? Well, he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, I beheaded John. So who is this about who I'm, I'm hearing such things? And he sought to see him, okay? And when we read that, that's ominous, all right? That, that phrase, he sought to see him, this is not like, Jesus sounds like a neat guy. I'd like to become friends with him. <laughs> this is more like, uh, I'm threatened by this Jesus, and I need to figure out if it's a true threat. Because if it is, I'll probably deal with it the way I dealt with John the Baptist. It's amazing. What's so interesting about this is this report's coming into Herod, and a lot of the report was probably really amazing. It was like, man, there are these, these 12. They're all over the, the region. People are getting healed. People are getting freed from all kinds of stuff. That's all positive. But what caused Herod's ears to perk up was when he started hearing language about a kingdom. A kingdom? There's already a kingdom. And let me tell you something. I am the king <laughs> of that kingdom. And I think he got perplexed by that. Isn't it interesting, River West? The news about Jesus is not always good news for some people because it's kind of a threat to their kingdom. 
right? I'm getting ahead of myself. That's one of my points for later, okay? So let's keep reading. I always do that. I can't help it. Okay, what happens next? Verse 10, on their return, the apostles told them all that they had done. Now, so isn't that interesting? So you could have skipped over 7 to 9 and just gone straight to 10. And then the story continues because now the 12 are back. So we'll talk later. What's, what is the purpose of sliding this story about Herod in the middle and wrapping it with these two stories of the 12? Now the 12 are back. They report back to Jesus, and here's what they tell him. They tell him all that they had done. And he took them, and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, And he welcomed them, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God. There it is again. He spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And he cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. We're we're here in the desert. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Amazing. Famous story, right? Feeding of the 5,000. You've all familiar with it. Even if you have very little exposure to the church, you've heard this story. Did you know this miracle is the only miracle story other than the resurrection that shows up in all four gospel accounts? All four gospel writers want us to know this particular account. What does it mean, though? What's the purpose of this little miracle, the feeding of the 5,000? We're around church. We've heard it many times. Maybe we've even heard little lessons that are drawn out of it. But wait a minute. Pull back the lens and try to see this story in in a higher level context. What is the purpose of this story? in Jesus's strategy, in his mission. There are two things you need to know to understand the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. The first is this. This miracle is dripping with Old Testament imagery, especially from the book of Exodus. Everyone who knew their Bible and heard this story would go, oh, there's all of these echoes of the Exodus story, the people wandering in the desert. They were out in the wilderness, and here we have 
Thousands of people out in the wilderness. And in the Exodus story, what happened in the wilderness? God provided this miraculous multiplication of bread, manna from heaven. And now we have Jesus providing this miraculous provision of bread. In the Exodus story, they were led by a king prophet, a leader, Moses. In the gospel story, they're being led by a king prophet, Jesus Christ. In the Exodus story, God instructed Moses to divide the people up into groups of 50. Did you know this? (laughs) Groups of 50. Now in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is instructing his disciples, break the people up into groups of 50. Why? What's happening? What What it's doing is it's saying, like everything we've studied in Luke, this moment cannot be detached from a bigger redemptive story that God's been telling. This story is rooted in a bigger story that goes all the way back to the beginning. It shows us the heart of God. God has a people that he's chosen and he's redeemed them and he's he's poured out his grace on them. He's delivered them from bondage in Egypt to slavery and now he's leading them through his prophet King Moses. He's leading them in the desert. He is their God They are his people. He's given them leaders, the 12 sons of Jacob, and he provides for their nourishment. And then you go to Luke 9, and you see the same story. But it's a new people. It's a new Israel with new leadership, 12 new leaders, and a new king who provides miraculously bread from heaven. And you begin to realize this story needs to be studied and understood in the context of a bigger story of how God works in our world. God's doing something new, a new community, a new Israel, which we call his church. Amazing, amazing. That's the first thing. And then the second thing that you'll notice, and it's actually, it's somewhat odd, is that Jesus almost in this story refuses to deal directly with the crowds when he performs this miracle. Isn't that interesting? Did you notice that? He, everything that he does in this moment, he insists that the disciples, the 12, engage. They say, send the crowds away. We're all going to die. They were kind of dramatic. We're all going to die in the wilderness. Jesus says, nope, you give them something to eat. Jesus takes the bread He prays, he blesses it, but he doesn't give it directly to the crowds. He gives it to the 12. And he says, you now disseminate this blessing. Again and again and again. There is Jesus behind the scenes. All the power, all the authority, all the source of miraculous provision is there in the king who's in the background making sure that provision happens. And how does it happen? It happens through the hearts and the hands of the people who call them his leader. Amazing. Amazing. And then you read it and you go, oh, now what is happening in this story? What is Luke doing here? And ultimately, what is Jesus doing I've read, a, I've read 17 verses. I've read a story where it begins with the 12 who are empowered 
with authority. And then they're commissioned and they're sent to be kingdom proclaimers and kingdom demonstrators. And my story ends with that same 12 who have come back and now I'm, a, I'm getting a vision of a new community with new leadership and a new king who wants to provide sustenance to the people in that community. And what do I have? I have that same 12 being trained. The king insisting, you will be the ones who will learn how to be my representatives in a broken and fallen world. And then, right in the middle, I have this odd little story of another king who's very threatened by this. So masterful. What's Jesus doing? Jesus knows that his 12 apostles need to learn how to be his representatives. They need to go to boot camp. Jesus boot camp is what we're going to call it, okay? So Jesus says, you got to learn some stuff. I need you, and I need every person who will become a follower of me because of you and your ministry. And so Jesus said, there are some lessons you need to learn. What lessons did the 12 learn that day? I think that they learned four, all right? Shocker, not three, but four. Um, Anyway, at least four, but let me suggest four lessons, and let me also suggest that these four lessons are for River West Church 2019. Four lessons about the kingdom. Will we learn them? I, I hope so, and I hope we'll live in them. Lesson number one. The spread of the kingdom requires a delicate balance of word and deed. Remember, he sent them out, and what do they do? They proclaimed the kingdom, and they healed. Word and deed. Gospel proclamation, gospel demonstration, held together in a delicate balance. And I've chosen that phrase, delicate balance, very intentionally. Because it takes a lot of wisdom in the church to hold these two things in balance. If you hold them in balance, amazing things can happen. A church that's passionate about the message of the gospel and proclaims it faithfully and pairs that with acts of mercy and demonstrations of compassion in a broken and fallen world, when a church holds those together in a delicate balance with great wisdom, extremely powerful things can happen in our world. But any time in the history of the church, those two things have fallen out of balance. Very dangerous, very, very dark, difficult things can happen. They need to be held in balance. Show me a church that is proclaiming the gospel faithfully, but they pay no attention to the actual physical needs of people in their community. And I will show you a church that's probably only ministering to people who have it all together. 
people who have no physical needs. They have to be held in balance. This spring, I got to go away for a, a conference um, in Indianapolis. It was a it was a conference for pastors on evangelism. It was a really powerful conference, and the purpose of the conference was to train pastors about how important evangelism in the church and how we can lead our churches to a more faithful uh, attempt at evangelism. It was really powerful for me, and. The speaker who impacted me the most was a, was a pastor named David Platt. Maybe you've heard of David Platt. Um, he was in the news this week. That's another story. But um, anyway, David Platt, he's, he's been a, a missionary all over the world, and he's a very, very faithful pastor and a, and a wonderful guy. And he, he preached this message that I literally, within the first seven minutes, I was, I was in tears. And he had this phrase that he used... And the phrase that he used was, he talked about a, a collision of urgent physical and spiritual needs in our world. This collision where those two things come together. Urgent spiritual need, yes, but also urgent physical need. What happens when both of those collide? And he talked about his experience in, in a village in the Himalayas. And he said, this, let me tell you something. If you need to see a collision of urgent physical and spiritual need, go to one of these villages or go to Myanmar or go to Rwanda. Or, you know, but he talked about this village where the physical needs there are so urgent. He said 50% of children in these villages in the Himalayas die before the age of eight. Can you imagine that? 50%. Can you imagine being a parent and knowing that 50% of your kids will not make it to age eight? I have two daughters, right? And they die, they die of things like diarrhea or diseases that we heal like this. Appendicitis, like no chance in the Himalayas. In America... My wife goes in, arthroscopic, she's out in 12 hours, right? Not in the Himalayas. So common diseases. And then poverty, and what's happening in these villages in the Himalayas is that the poverty is the cause of this very, very vicious, ugly form of sex trafficking where these men from other communities, other countries... They come into these villages and they, they prey upon these poor families. They lie to them, make promises, and these families will let them take their daughters for money. And they take these girls into cities where they're put in brothels and they're broken and they're turned into prostitutes. Young girls urgent physical need. He said, these are real people. Look into their faces. Look into the face of a man whose eye is hanging out by a disease that we would go to Walgreens and get a prescription, right? And then urgent spiritual need. This, is the, this region is the, is the 
birthplace of Buddhism and Hinduism, the name Jesus is unheard of. There, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a region of 9 million people, Platt said there might be 200 Christians. Imagine that. You say the name Jesus, they think you're talking about a weird named guy from a different village. He says, put those together. Urgent physical need, urgent spiritual need. And now, remember, what is the cure to both of those things? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God meets both of those needs. Amazing. River West, this is why we go. This is why we go to Rwanda. This is why we go to Myanmar. This is why our church has been on the front lines of our own sex trafficking problem in our community, one of the worst in the States. The people from our church whose hearts have been broken and the spirit is tugged on their hearts, stepping forward saying, we've got to do something about this. Yes, we'll preach the gospel, but how can you preach to the, the gospel to a girl who's in bondage until you free her? How can you share the gospel with a child who has an empty stomach? They can't even learn arithmetic in Rwanda until they eat a meal. So we do both. This is why we go to Myanmar. Next, next fall, we'll send another medical team to Myanmar. We'll do a medical mission there. We, we, we did our first last year. We served over 200 people in this village. Basic medical needs. If you know anything about the geopolitical stuff in Myanmar, it's very unstable. People are suffering from stuff that we can cure like this. So we'll take a medical team. If you have a heart for something like that or medical experience, reach out to Pastor Christopher. We want to go back to Myanmar. So you do both. Okay, but now show me a church who is very focused on ministries of mercy, but they're not so interested in talking about Jesus. Remember, we have to keep these in balance. Show me a church that's passionate about justice and, and righting wrongs and healing the sick and feeding the poor, but they're a little bit embarrassed to talk about Jesus. And I will show you a church who has stopped having an eternal impact in our world. I will show you a church that is no longer actually making a difference for the kingdom at an eternal level. Amen? They go together. It's been said that Francis Assisi said this famous quote. Maybe you've heard it. This is attributed to Assisi. He said, at all times, preach the gospel. When necessary, use words. Have you heard that? It's very poetic. It's also incredibly nonsensical. <laughs> okay. It's wrong. Okay, Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. First of all, I'm pretty sure, I don't think Assisi actually said that. But secondly, it doesn't really work because the gospel requires words. That would be like me saying, share your phone number with me and only when necessary, use digits. Right? Four, three. <laughs> right? 
You cannot share the gospel without words. Now, I get the, the idea behind it is, man, at the church, if you guys would just stop screaming at people about Jesus and proselytizing, and if you would just do good in the world, and if you would heal the sick and feed the poor and, and, and fight for justice, all good things, if you would just do that, you know, your reputation would change and people would be more open to what's happening there. And there's just one problem with that. It doesn't actually work. That doesn't work. In the last 10 or 15 years in our community, the church has been on the front lines of refugee care, sex trafficking, foster care, feeding the poor. Do you know who's on the front lines in our community on all of those things? The evangelical church. And I would argue the reputation of the church today is just as damaged as it's ever been. So we don't do mercy ministry in order to change our reputation in the world. We do mercy ministry because it's the heart of God. We do it because we care about God and about his kingdom. Now, how about you? What, what need is God tapping your heart about? What urgent need? What you see a need, you see someone broken, and, you, and your heart is aching. Don't ignore that. That's the Spirit of God touching your heart. The way ministries start in our church is people come and they say, we have got to do something about this. People have needs, and they come, and we say, great, you do something about it, and we'll get behind you, right? That's how ministries start. How about you? Are you with us? At River West, we're holding these in balance for the glory of God and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Okay, three more, but they'll be a lot faster. You're like, dude, you're running out of time. No, I'm gonna, I, 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 I front-loaded this, okay? So just relax. Okay, here's lesson number two. This will go really fast. It's obvious. Lesson number two. The reality of the kingdom will always be met with a certain amount of opposition. Always. Because one kingdom is always a threat to another kingdom. That's how it works. And so don't panic. Don't freak out. Jesus promised us the world is not going to like you. You're not joining the popularity club when you join a church, okay? Because one kingdom is always a threat to another kingdom. And so just don't worry. Don't worry. You know, it's amazing. I guarantee you Herod had no problem with the reports about people getting healed. I bet he was like, great. It was the reports about a kingdom that caused him to resist. No one will ever criticize Christians for feeding the poor and healing the sick and doing acts of mercy. But the second you say to someone, you really need Jesus, now you're going to experience resistance. And that's okay. That's okay. It's a part of what it means to be his people in the world. Okay? Number three. We'll move fast. Lesson number three. Take these home. Think about these. The blessings of the kingdom will always find their source in side of the body of Christ. 
his church. It's where the blessings will always come from. This is the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000. The purpose of that miracle is a vision of a new king. And there he is. And he's powerful. And he can provide blessings and freedom and joy in a broken and fallen world. And how does he do it? He, do, he does it through the hands and the feet and the hearts of people who love him, who have surrounded him. And he insists that those blessings spread into the world through the hands of the 12, which we know become my hands and your hands. You're part of the kingdom of Jesus. You're a part of the body of Christ. God has a mission for you that the blessings of his kingdom would spread through you. I love the way Tim Keller described this. He, he described the church as a kingdom outpost. Here's what he said. I'll, I'll read this quote just real quick. Keller said, What is the relationship of the church to the kingdom? On the one hand, the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. It's not simply a, a collection of individuals who are forgiven. It is a royal nation. In other words, a counterculture. The church is to be a new society in which the world can see what family dynamics, business practices, race relations, and all of life can be under the kingship of Jesus Christ. God is out to heal all the effects of sin, psychological, social, and physical. And how does he do it? He does it through his church. The church is the outpost of the kingdom out there in the world where we're needed, where we're needed. Pray for our church, River West. I know you do. I'm asking you to double down. <laughs> Pray for us that we would hold these in balance, that our hearts would be soft, that we would be wise and compassionate, that we would be bold with the name of Jesus and we would be bold with the blessings of Jesus in our world. And then number four, and this one's really short and it's very personal. This is for you. It goes like this. As long as you are connected to Jesus, you can accomplish more than you can imagine for his glory and his good in this world. Can you accomplish things in this world for God's glory if you are not connected to Jesus? Of course not. Jesus is the source. Can you, you, not your neighbor, you, can you accomplish amazing things in this world for God's glory and his good if you are connected to Jesus? 100%. Take it to the bank. There they are, the 12. They're surrounded by 5,000 people, and they're starting to worry, and they're looking at a daunting situation, and they're thinking about people's needs, and they're going, Jesus, we do not have the resources to take care of this. And Jesus says, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because you have the game changer with you. It's me. Look to me. I, I, I try to imagine that moment. Jesus has blessed the food. He breaks the bread. Most commentators say the miracle had not happened yet. 
He, he broke the bread and he handed it to the 12 and it was still just the five loaves. Now think about this. They had to walk into a crowd of 5,000 people with five loaves still in faith going, do we have the resources? I don't know, but he prayed a prayer, so here we go. And they walk in there and they start passing out this bread and these fish and suddenly this miracle. And how did it happen? I don't know, but it just started to multiply and multiply. And suddenly they found we're feeding 5,000 people. How are we doing this? It's because we're connected to the bread of life, the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, creator and savior of the universe. Praise God. Isn't Jesus good? Aren't you glad? We know Jesus. So good. Let's pray about that, and the worship team will come. Lord. How we need these four lessons today. To be reminded of who we are. How you view us, Jesus. Not just a gathering of forgiven people, although we're that. No, we are your outpost. Right here in this community a kingdom community, and we want to honor you, Jesus. And we want to hold these things in balance. Gospel proclamation. I pray for those who have come today and they've been a little timid about talking about Jesus. Would you bless them today with courage? And I want to pray for those who've come today and they've been a little bit disengaged about meeting people's physical needs in a broken world. Would you give them wisdom today, Lord? Help us to hold those in balance. May we stay connected to you. And may we walk out of here, God, as your ambassadors, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.